Let's begin with the first lesson, Acts 5, 27 to 32. When the temple police had brought the apostles, they had them stand before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you are determined to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than any human authority. I'm always fascinated by who it is that's attracted to that line of thought. But leave that aside for now. The God of our ancestors raised up Jesus. The God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. The God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior that he might give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. So much in so few lines. We should not assume, though, that everything in this scene, everything said and done, is to be praised as necessary or right. In spite of what sometimes suggested, not everything described in Acts is prescribed by the Spirit. The apostles, including Peter, routinely get it wrong. Luke knows Israel's scriptures astonishingly well. He knows the stories of the patriarchs, including Abraham, the stories of the kings, including David. He knows the stories of the prophets, like Moses, and the priests, like Aaron. And he knows that these stories are far more often than not stories of vanity, stories of corruption and faithlessness, stories of ineptitude, indifference, overreach, stories of, of failure. Notice Luke does not say in this passage, as he had done earlier in Acts 2 and Acts 4, that Peter and the apostles are filled with the Spirit in their speaking. He says only that they answered. Perhaps then the high priest is at least half right. Of course, the temple authorities did work with other powers to get Jesus killed. But the apostles' words seem blunt, not incisive a hammer and not a scalpel. What they say enrages the council. And and in, in Acts, mobs are often enraged by the truth. But, be that as it may, they, these words do not cut to the heart in the way that Peter's Pentecost sermon did. Tellingly, at least it's telling to me, the apostles do not say a word about Herod or Pilate, although there is that reference that Jesus was killed by being hanged on a tree, which is a Roman means of execution. That's crucifixion. And, and the Romans do that. Jesus was not stoned. He was crucified. And yet they lay the blame for that at the feet of the high priest and the council. Most importantly, though, the apostles do not say a word about their own responsibility for what happened to Jesus. And bearing those silences in mind, the silence about Herod and Pilate, the other powers, and 
the silence about their own guilt. It's striking to me that they claim the Holy Spirit has been given by God to those who obey him, and that they claim the Spirit has been given so that there might be forgiveness for Israel. In the Gospel, however, as you remember, Jesus says the Father gives the Holy Spirit to those who ask him, Luke 11. And Jesus' word, last word to his apostles, is that they will be his witnesses not only in Judea, but to the uttermost parts of the earth. In today's Gospel, John 20, Jesus breathes on the disciples as he had breathed on Adam in the beginning, sharing the spirit of life with them, even though they have been anything but obedient, and even though they ask for nothing. This is how John tells the story. It was evening on that first day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. The doors of the house were locked. The disciples, including Peter and John and the other apostles, are burrowed away, hiding for fear of the Jews. And their fear is all the more remarkable given what we know they know. They know the tomb is empty. They know the cloth that had been on Jesus' face was left behind, neatly folded. They know Mary Magdalene has seen the Lord. They know the word he shared with her for them. And yet they remain in hiding. We're told they fear the Jews, the prominent extremists and hardliners in Jerusalem and Judea who had successfully plotted and schemed to kill Jesus. That is almost certainly what they told themselves. But in truth, I think they're not so much afraid as in dread, and not afraid of the Jews, but in dread of the Lord, in dread of what the Lord has done or might do. The Gospels are clear. The disciples, including the apostles, simply do not have the words for what they feel has happened. But their bodies know, because their hearts know, that whatever has happened has brought everything they have known into doubt. Thomas, in this regard, is anything but alone. So, on the evening of the first day of new creation, the doors are locked the gospel says, and Jesus comes and stands among these terrified disciples. He does not stand at the door and knock. He simply appears among them. We sometimes tell the story of the resurrection as if Jesus startled awake early on Sunday morning, suddenly realizing he had been dead and now is alive again. Listen to Marie Howe's marvelous lines. I love this poem, even though I think it's, it's mistaken theologically. Two of the fingers on his right hand had been broken. So when he poured back into that hand, it surprised him. It hurt him at first. And his whole body was too small. Imagine the sky trying to fit into a tunnel carved into a hill. He came into it two ways. From the outside, as we step into a pair of pants. And from the center, suddenly, all at once. 
that he felt himself awake in the dark alone. A lovely poem, but the Gospels tell a different story. They say nothing about Jesus' inner thoughts and feelings. They tell us that the stone is rolled away only after Jesus is risen. They tell us the stone is rolled away for show, so that the guards and the disciples can know for a fact that something impossible has happened. Jesus is risen indeed. They tell us that Jesus left the tomb where he had been buried, the same way he arrives in the room where the disciples had barricaded themselves. Only then he disappeared. Now he appears. But without changing any of the material around material re- reality around him. But that's not quite right, is it? We can't speak of the then of the resurrection as if it happened at a particular moment in time, a moment that could be timed. The resurrection happened not in time, or not in time only, but also to it. The risen Christ, they're told, is no longer in the tomb. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. But what they soon discover is that he is in the tomb, because the tomb is in him. As Robert Jensen says in his large catechism, there is no spatial separation to overcome between the embodied Jesus in heaven and the loaf and cup on the altar of communion. Why not? Because the question of Christ's bodily presence at the supper is not a question of getting from one place to another, but of the availability to us in the places where he chooses to be, the places he chooses to be found and directs us to seek him. In other words, Christ's bodily presence is his availability to us wherever we need him to be, wherever he wants to be for us. And to quote Jensen again, all places are one in their accessibility to him. And so we can add are all times. As I've just said, the events of Christ's life, his birth, his baptism, his death, his resurrection, happen not only in time, but to it. The Christ who appears in the locked room to those frightened disciples is the same Christ who appears in the sealed fountain of the virgin's womb. And it is is his disappearance from the sealed tomb that fuses the events of his life into the transfiguring power at work at the deepest steps of history. It's the resurrection, the, the, the coming into fullness that transfigures his life and makes his life the transfiguring power at work in all lives. Karl Rahner gets this exactly right, I think. The purpose of Jesus' life is perfectly accomplished in his resurrection. The whole Christ with his whole destiny and with everything he experienced and suffered on earth with his human nature has now entered into the glory of the Father. The glorification of his body is not something accidental, a second thought, but it is given to him because he has attained the great end and purpose of his history. That is so true that everything that he was in course of his history has entered into the glory of the Father. Jesus has not lost a thing. Jesus has not lost a thing. He possesses his life completely. There's a line in the King James. It's translated differently in the NRSV, but in the King James it says, In your patience you possess your souls. In your patience 
possess ye your souls, I think is actually the way the line runs. And that sense of having the, the possession of your own life, having everything about who you are, everything in completion at hand, that's what's real, true for Jesus. He possesses his life completely. He took his whole life and everything in it with him into glory. The resurrected, ascended Lord is the end of the ages. He is the heart of the world. This and nothing less than this is what we proclaim when we proclaim the resurrection. Jesus, the one who lived that life that began in Mary's belly and died that death outside Jerusalem's walls, is the infinite, eternal source, guide, and goal of created existence. He is the end of the ages as the beginning of all things. He is the beginning as the end. His life is the life of all that is good and true and beautiful. His death is the death of all that's opposed to creation's flourishing. Nothing but what he does, nothing but what he wants done, will matter at all in the end. And so St. Maximus says, He who is initiated into the inexpressible power of the resurrection apprehends the purpose for which God first established everything. The New Testament reading for Sunday is Revelation 1, 4-8. It opens with John's identification of Jesus as the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the rulers of the kings of the earth. It closes with Jesus' own words, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, who is to come, the Almighty. The order of these identifications is not insignificant. Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth, only as the firstborn of the dead. And he is the firstborn of the dead only as the faithful witness, the one who did not cling to life even in the face of death. His dominion, in other words, is the outworking of his resurrection life in the whole of the cosmos, so that every creature not only exists, but breathes with the breath of God, fulfilling the promise of the last line in the last psalm, let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. In Revelation, thanks to Jesus, everything does have breath and has the breath of God. In Revelation, Jesus' dominion is the dominion of peace and thanksgiving, a peace he brought about not by spilling the blood of God's enemies, or by blaming God's enemies for the spilling of blood, but by drinking for them the cup of the unmixed wine of God's wrath. He is the Lord, John reminds us, the Almighty, but it is because he is the Almighty, the one from whom and through whom and for whom all things exist, that the report of his resurrection is gospel, a goodness that spells or charms the world into the fullness of peace and joy. Everything depends on the fact that it is Jesus who is resurrected and not anyone else. In the gospel reading, when Christ appears, he speaks peace over the disciples as before he had spoken peace over the waters. He needs to speak peace because they are in dread, as I said, of him of what he had wrought. He has stripped the world of its orderliness, its predictability, and as Father Paul said to me after looking over this draft, its purpose. The disciples are left undone. It is only after he shows them his hands and his side that they rejoice. In fact, read closely. They do not even see him until he shows them his hands and his side. 
whatever they see, they do not see him until he shows them his hands and his side. So that first word of peace goes unheard. Then he breathes the Spirit on them after having passed the peace a second time. So, despite what Peter and the apostles suggest to the high priest in the temple courts, they received the Spirit not because they obeyed, not because they even knew enough to ask for the Spirit, but simply because Jesus loved them and kept showing up until that love caught hold of them. Obviously, the story is different from mine, and our stories are different from the apostles, but not so different that we can't learn anything from them. I suspect that at least some of us are locked away right now, grieving what we've lost or terrified by what may come. Others of us are spoiling for a fight, seething with righteous indignation, or not so righteous, eager to bring Jesus' blood down on those we know are in the wrong. Most of us, I suspect, veer back and forth between the sealed-off room and the temple court. One moment, engaging this person, we are nervous, self-protective. The next moment, engaging that person, we are brutal and vindictive. And here's the good news. If you're in hiding, Jesus will appear to you and make himself known to you so that you're filled with God's own joy. He does not even need you to open the door. And if you're on the warpath, if you're out crusading, Jesus will afford you all the time and space you need to discover for yourself not only that your violence can never accomplish his peace, but also that his peace will always triumph over your violence. First for those you've wronged, and then, when you're ready, also for you. He can do that because he, he is the heart of the world. Time is his. History is his. You are his. Last week, after I shared my latest health update, a dear friend, Bill Oliverio, sent me a text. I won't share all of it, but he ended his message with these words, which struck me as words right out of the mouth of Jesus. Peace, strength, rest to you. Everything will be here waiting. Peace, strength, rest to you. Everything will be here waiting. But I want to say to you, that is the kind of speech, that is the word the Spirit makes possible for all of us to say and to hear. We can speak peace and rest to ourselves and to others, including those powers that are at odds with God. Because Jesus is risen and he's risen as the heart of the world. He has all the time he needs. We have all the time we need to get it right. Everything will be here waiting.